Welcome to the LA Public Health Podcast for Wednesday, June 3rd, 2020. I'm Steve Baldwin, and this episode features our first interview on the show. Yesterday, I was lucky enough to spend a few minutes with Dr. Barbara Ferrer, director of the Los Angeles County Department of Public Health, who shared her thoughts on a range of topics, including the murder of George Floyd, the impact of COVID-19 on communities of color, and how institutional racism is the common thread that connects the two. Stay tuned at the end of the episode for some additional information and links to help you stay informed and connected to the department's work. But for now, here's my conversation with Dr. Barbara Ferrer. Dr. Ferrer, it's appropriate that you are the first guest interview on the LA Public Health Podcast, so thanks for making time today. Thanks so much, Steve, for having me. Deeply honored. I I wish we were meeting under different circumstances, uh, but I want to begin by reflecting on the events of this past week. when people took to the streets in our county uh, and around the country to protest in the wake of the tragic murder of George Floyd, who died in Minneapolis due to police brutality. On Monday at the Board of Supervisors press briefing, you spoke um, so eloquently about the decades of institutional racism as the primary cause of health inequality. And you've shared about this um, publicly, but also sort of privately in meetings when your only audience is the DPH staff. Um, There was so much emotion in your voice that I could hear, and I think everyone could hear on Monday. And I'm wondering if you could share a little bit about why you feel this issue is so critical and what it means to you personally. Yeah, thanks so much, Steve. Um, I don't know how many people had an opportunity to actually um, sit in silence for the almost nine minutes Um, that reflect the amount of time that a police officer uh, held a person who was a black man uh, down uh, by choking him and uh, making it impossible for him to breathe. But if you did have that opportunity um, to sit uh, in reflection, I know you probably, like me, were overwhelmed by the horror of that event. Um, for somebody to have brutally murdered another person, somebody who's actually sworn to uphold sort of an honorable duty uh, to help protect life, uh, is so abhorrent and horrifying uh, that there are no real words that we've got to express uh, our utter disgust and dismay and heartache about what happened uh, what happened last week. Yeah. I think the worst part, though, is that this is not an isolated instance. Mm. First of all, there were three other police officers who allowed this to happen. Uh, second of all, we have story after story uh, this year alone of other instances of racist police behavior that results in uh, death and heartache for so many families. Uh, And we have a history going back to the beginning and the founding of this country that's rooted on annihilating uh, people we don't like uh, because they're not white and they don't look like us uh, and oppressing others, you know, through enslavement and denial of, of basic rights. And the tragedy is that uh, this continues today. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's why uh, 
we're dealing with so much unrest. Uh, so many people have dedicated their entire lives to fighting for justice and racial justice, economic justice, social justice. Um, and to be uh, here now in the midst of a pandemic that also exposes the sort of underbelly of the impact of racism um, on uh, some of our communities and not on others um, is uh, terrifying for us and, and for me. Um, that, uh, you know, we're, we're at a, a point uh, where uh, if we don't figure out how to do things differently, I think in many ways uh, uh, we are allowing the inhumanity uh, that's uh, out there uh, mm -hmm. to take over. You, you've shared about the disparate inequality that the, the COVID-19 virus is, is um, uh, placed, uh, the burden that it's placed on communities of color. How do you feel that that is contributing to, on top of this, this uh, the, the death of George Floyd? Um, do you think that the combination of those two is really fueling what's happening, or is it, does it go even deeper than that? I mean, the common denominator is racism, um, a, a legacy of racism and acts of discrimination, and the continued uh, act of uh, systemic racism, institutional racism, and, uh, and individual and uh, systemic discrimination. So these, these patterns uh, explain how it's possible for police to murder people uh, because of the color of their skin, and they explain how it's possible for a black baby in 2020 in L.A. County, one of the richest, most well-resourced counties in the world, uh, for a black baby to be born and have four times the chance of dying in the first year of life mm. than a white baby. And the death rate for black babies today is higher than the death rate was for white babies 25 years ago. Mm. So, you know, that's the horror of racism, and we have to stop talking about it, to be honest. I, I, I know, you know, it's always good to have important conversations and honest conversations uh, and brokered conversations, uh, but we have to stop, we have to start dismantling racism. You know, it's, it's a system that was set up that sets a value uh, for some people's lives based on the, the color of their skin and devalues other people's lives based on the color of their skin. And it's a social construct uh, but in order for it to actually be dismantled, you know, we're going to have to work together uh, and uh, all agree that this is the most important work in front of us. Mm -hmm. uh, we can't get sidetracked uh, and we can't uh, lose hope. Uh, and the reason I say we can't lose hope is humanity kind of counts on us right now um, to take on this struggle and be successful in that dismantling uh, of systems of oppression. As people continue to, to grieve um, over the, the Floyd um, murder and continue to exercise their right to, to peacefully protest, there's been some wonderful peaceful protests and also some, some rioting and some looting. Um, it's easy to, to see people not socially distancing, not wearing masks. Uh, on Monday at the press briefing, you talked about the potential of 
these protests to become super spreader events. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that. Are, are protesters at greater risk for transmitting the disease? Well, no one's at greater risk, and I, I hope I made that clear. We're all equally at risk of transmitting wherever we go and whatever we do. Um, so a protester is no more likely uh, than you or I uh, to have the capacity to transmit the disease. We're all at this point equally likely to both transmit and, in fact, uh, to, uh, to get infected. That, that's because there's a lot of asymptomatic spread. Uh, the problem uh, that we're going to have because of the protests is there are many instances where people were not able to, to keep on their, their face coverings, and they ended up being in close proximity with other people. And because we don't exactly have a way of identifying uh, who was you know, carrying the virus, you have to assume when you're in a large event like that that you've probably had an exposure. You know, we're really uh, recommending, as we do f in other situations where you think you may have been somewhere and had an exposure, uh, that you self-quarantine for the 14 days, you know, monitor yourself, you know, keep yourself out of uh, the possibility of unintentionally infecting others. Um, it's a 14-day incubation period, so it's going to take a while uh, for you to know whether or not you had an exposure and you're now infected. Um, and, you know, I think any event at this point, any event where there are crowds. Uh, so if you're on that boardwalk in Venice and you're all crowded together, if you went to the beach and you were one of the, you know, handful of people that decided not to adhere to the distancing requirements and the masking requirements and ended up being in a crowd of 50, 60 people, uh, you went to a pool party with 50, 60 people, you all had an equal chance as the protesters do of uh, transmitting uh, the virus to someone else or having someone else transmit the virus to you. There's nothing inherent in the act of exercising First Amendment rights uh, that puts somebody at greater risk than any other large event um, where people are in close contact with other people who are not wearing face coverings and where you're not able to keep your distance. Now, I will say, um, you know, chanting, singing, um, you know, uh, you know, please do that with a face covering because, you know, just like we've seen in churches that were open uh, where, you know, people in a choir managed to, because of, you know, their joyous singing, mm -hmm. uh, but uh, they weren't protected and uh, they weren't distancing. And it's a kind of easy way. You could just think about it practically, you know, spewing a lot more respiratory droplets uh, in that chanting and yelling and uh, singing than you might otherwise uh, if you're just quietly talking and engaging in conversation. So I do say to people, you know, it's really important. Keep your face coverings on. That's your way of respecting others right now. Do you think that people that have participated in not just protests, but any, any gathering um, like that should get tested for COVID-19? Well, you know, it's an interesting question. And, you know, we could just go look at the science for a second. Uh, so the, the period of incubation is 14 days. Mm -hmm. So, Steve, if I think that today you may have infected me, it will take, it, it will take, it could take as long as 14 days before I would know, I would, I would know whether or not I was infected. Uh, so it's not realistic to go get tested every day for 14 days um, because every day that you get a negative test, you still have to wait all the way to the end of the 14 days to really know whether or not that exposure that you might have had 
resulted in your getting infected. So what we really say to folks is the better thing to do, because you're going to have to stay home for 14 days no matter what, is if you've been in close contact with somebody who you think was infected or was infected, you know, that's why I say self-quarantine, monitor yourself. At the point that you develop any symptoms, you know, I would talk with your provider and we would recommend that at that point, if your provider agrees, that would be a good time to get tested. Uh, but you have to understand it's a 14-day incubation period. And a negative test on day two does not mean you're out of the woods at all. And it actually means you still have risk all the way till day 14 uh, for becoming infected with COVID-19. Got it. Got it. Okay. Thanks for clarifying that. Um, we just have a few minutes left. And I want to move on to the latest health order released on May 29th indicates uh, that more businesses are allowed to open. People can begin to use indoor malls. Uh, places of worship, hair salons, restaurants are given the green light as long as protocols are followed. Um, and of course, social distancing is in place with uh, facial coverings and other venue specific requirements. Does, does the fact that we've moved from uh, phase one to phase two of our recovery journey, does that mean that the social distancing and the face masks and, and the efforts that we're collectively doing are working? Are, we, are things getting better? Well, you know, getting better, it's like such a relative term. And, and the reason I say that is we've lost a lot of people in our community to COVID-19, yeah. well over 2,000. So nothing got better for, for them or their families. Um, and we, we always need to keep that in mind that uh, this is a devastating time for so many people. And, and there's also a lot of people who, who really got sick. Uh, and their recovery is taking a long time. Uh, and, uh, and for many of them, uh, the recovery is really hard, mm. um, and, and they're not well, uh, and it's weeks and weeks of not being well. Uh, so, so I think, you know, we should all uh, just always, you know, keep our prayers and our thoughts with those for whom uh, COVID-19 uh, has really uh, resulted in, in uh, huge losses, mm -hmm. um, as well as, you know, those families that have economically and psychologically lost a lot. Um, you know, this isolation um, has not been easy, uh, and certainly the job losses have had a profound impact on, on the ability for people to be well and to be healthy. Um, so I, what I think we have done, though, is uh, with all of that distancing, and, and a lot of it was staying home, uh, we have definitely slowed the spread. There's no question about um, the fact that we've slowed the spread. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, even though we have many more cases now, in part that's because we do a lot more testing, and that's all a good thing. Because if you know you're positive, then you know what you need to do to take care of yourselves and the people you love. And if you don't know that you're positive, it's kind of hard to do that. So I'm glad people are getting tested, and I'm glad our case numbers reflect a dramatic increase in our capacity to test. Right. But we really need to watch our hospitalization rates uh, and our death and, and how many people are dying. We, we can't have increases, uh, significant increases in either. Um, we need to make sure that, uh, you know, uh, we stay uh, below 2,000 people being in the hospital on a given day. You know, on average, you know, that's where we were at the height. Uh, we're now down to somewhere between 1,300 and 1,400 people. Uh, we could probably tolerate um, having more people but we can't go high. Now, you've talked about those metrics for, for progressing 
in the recovery um, journey, and they're sort of bucketed into capacity and effectiveness. So are those the two that 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 are most important? On effectiveness, on effectiveness, okay. we're gonna we're gonna pay a lot of attention to deaths and hospitalizations, and we're gonna look at that data by race and ethnicity and poverty levels. Because again, as we've seen with so much, you can see infant mortality decline really a lot over time, mm -hmm. but the gap between the white community and black community actually got slightly bigger. Yeah. So we cannot have the devastation that the pandemic uh, wrecks on, on people's lives disproportionately um, show up in our communities of color. So we've got to watch both hospitalizations and deaths uh, by uh, by looking at uh, particular the experiences in particular communities, I mean, right now today, if you're a person in that lives in a community uh, with a high rate of poverty, you're four times more likely to die of COVID-19 than if you're a person who lives in a community uh, that has very little poverty. That's unconscionable. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know, it's unfortunately a pattern that's uh, so exposed by this pandemic. You know, similarly, we see dis, you know uh, disproportionality among people of color. You know, Latinx, Latinos, African Americans, Native Hawaiians, Pacific Islanders, and and even Asians have significantly higher rates of death when compared to uh, white residents here. So we're going to have to look at that as we mark uh, how well we're doing on the. Um, you know, sort of on the outcome side. But we also have to maintain our capacity. So um, it's going to be extraordinarily important that we've got PPE for all the people who need it. You know, we're the richest country in the world, and yet every day I'm on calls where we're scrambling today, mm. four months into a pandemic, to make sure that staff who are on the front lines have the right PPE. You know, if they need a surgical mask, they've got a surgical mask. If they need an N95, they've got an N95. If they need a gown, they need a gown. This is outrageous, um, but that's why we have to keep monitoring because if we if that supply chain continues to break down, uh, then we put a lot of people at risk uh, yeah. who are our frontline workers. So we're going to have to watch the capacity side of the house. Uh, for public health, that means we've got to maintain our ability to do all of the case interviews and then all of the contact tracing. Mm -hmm. So we average about 1,000 new cases a day. Uh, but we could go easily as high as 2,000, 2,500 new cases a day, uh, and that would mean, you know, another five, six, seven thousand additional people that are close contacts. So every day we have to make sure we have capacity to uh, get in touch with those folks and do the interviews, gather information, and be able to make sure people are isolating and quarantining as appropriate. Got it. We've just got about one more minute, and. Um which is perfect. I just have this final question for you. You know, we, we've talked about um, the impact of decades of institutional racism. Uh, we're in the middle of a pandemic. We've got protests happening, people clashing with law enforcement, so much uncertainty. Where does Barbara Ferrer turn to for hope and peace? What, what gives you hope? You know, our people, like this is a wonderful community and uh, we're blessed to be here. You know, I'm blessed to be working at this department uh, we have amazing, committed, skilled people that I get to work with every single day. And we're part of a larger community of people who have dedicated their entire lives uh, to striving for justice and fairness. And, you know, it's just an honor to be part of uh, this amazing community. And, and that is the hope, you know, for all of us. Uh, 
and that's our blessing and you know that's what keeps us going dr barbara ferrer thanks so much for joining us thanks a million steve for more information on COVID-19 and the measures described by Dr. Ferrer, there's a link in the show notes for this episode. Additional resources are available at covid19.lacounty.gov. This episode of LA Public Health was produced by the Los Angeles County Department of Public Health. Our department is nationally accredited by the Public Health Accreditation Board and is committed to protecting and improving the health of over 10 million residents in Los Angeles County. For more information about DPH programs and services, visit publichealth.lacounty.gov and follow us on social media at LA Public Health. My name is Steve Baldwin, and you've been listening to the LA Public Health Podcast.